right. Good morning, everybody. Or I always say good evening, good afternoon, good middle of the night, wherever you are, if you're watching us online, if you're watching us on the web player, uh, anytime, whenever you join us. Glad that you're here, especially, though, glad to look out and see your faces. So extra props to you who are here in-house. It's, uh, gosh, it just means so much to be able to look out and see faces. Now, the message today is really going to even focus in on that. So extra props and extra points for you guys to be here. Um, But welcome especially to the visitors. If you're new here, um, we teach a little differently than some churches. I use a lot of scripture, and we will go into scripture, and we will talk about what it actually means in context, and I try and make it come to life as much as possible. Um, that being said, if you missed any of our previous messages, you can go back through our website, through Facebook, through YouTube, and catch the archives and look at our previous messages. Um, this is just a three-week series, which is really, really short for us. If you know us here at Discover, it's really, really short. We just got out of 10 months where we went through the book of Job, chapter by chapter. And and yeah, I know it seemed like a long time, but hopefully there was some really great stuff that you took away. Um, as we get into this new series, it's important to look at the difference between Job and what we're going to talk about now. This whole series, it's called The Relentless Pursuit, and it's about Jesus pursuing us, pursuing his people, those who have been given to him. The book of Job was all about really spiritual warfare and how the enemy is relentless, Satan is relentless coming after you. But we learned a lot of other things through the book of Job. At least I hope that you were with me and you learned a lot of other things. Number one, God will use everything, the good and the bad. He'll use it to refine us, use it to bring us into a place of higher, closer relationship with him. And in some cases, just refine away the sin and the darkness and the things in our life that don't belong there. Sometimes he uses that pain and suffering to do it, not as a punishment, but to bring us to the realization that there are things in my life that shouldn't be there, and it's hurting my relationship with God. So we learned that. We also learned, again, that Satan will do everything he can to steal our inheritance that is in Christ Jesus. He'll do everything that he can to tarnish the bride of Christ so that when Christ returns, that the bride is not ready and spotless for him as we're supposed to be working towards. And again, ultimately, really, we learn that the enemy is relentless. He will stop at nothing. And so again, the first scripture I want to show to you, I share this all the time because it's so important. First Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Can I get an amen? I mean, how exciting is that for somebody who's new to Christ. If you're trying to share Jesus with somebody and go, hey, here's why you should know Jesus. The enemy is prowling like a roaring lion looking to devour. Very few people are ever saved, come to Christ because of that kind of a threat. What they are more attracted to typically and should be in us is the gospel message of Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So when you look at the enemy being relentless, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. I always say 24-7. He doesn't take time off. He doesn't take holidays off. He's relentless, but the good news, the gospel message of Jesus is he's not the only one who is relentless. That should be an amen from everybody, right? It's okay. If I have to ask for it, it loses its impact. So come on, let's just watch for it. But Satan is relentless, but Jesus is relentless too. And he tells these parables. All throughout Scripture, Jesus teaches a lot in parables. And he does this because teaching in a parable can make a really, really difficult spiritual concept become a little bit more straightforward, a little bit more applicable to your life. Now, it's up to us then to look at those parables with a little of an eye towards, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper. The cool thing about Scripture is that you can read it casually. So you could read this. So we're in Luke 15. So you could read Luke chapter 15, read all three of those parables, and read them kind of casually and just go, okay, that's cool. I get it. It's a neat, something was valuable, but it was lost, and then it was found, and everybody was happy. 
at its base, that's the, and there's a message in that, right? Then if you go one step further and go, okay, the thing that was lost usually in some way or another represents us. The person doing the finding is more often than not Jesus, and then all the angels and God rejoice. Okay, so you can go a little bit further in that, but, and there's great value in that, but if you go further and start peeling away the layers of the onion, I like to call it, and go deeper, even the most basic, even the most straightforward parable has so much depth to it. So what we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about the second parable, and I'll get to that in a second, but Jesus teaches three parables here, and the illustration in chapter 15 is how he is relentless in his pursuit of those that the Father has given him, and that comes itself from John 6. So John chapter 6, I'll just read this one to you. John chapter 6, verse 37 through 39, Jesus says this, everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I certainly will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everything that he has given me, I will lose nothing but raise it up on that last day. And then the last verse of that, of that section, John 6, verse 40. We got that one on screen. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Church, that is, that is the gospel message right there. That is the best little synopsis of the gospel message in Jesus right there. But there's so much more. And think about it. If you were at that time, if you're walking around at the time of Christ and you're hearing him say those words, you're hearing him say that, you're probably in one of a few places. You could be one of the Pharisees, and to which all that would sound totally blasphemous to you. Or you could just be a, a random casual person from the, from the countryside who just came to see what the, all the fuss was about. And you go like, okay, I don't really get it. You could even be one of the disciples following him around who said, okay, we, we sort of see what you're getting at here, but there's so much more to it. So what Jesus does is he takes that concept and he teaches a parable about it. Not just one parable, but a series of parables that help us to help the audience at his time to kind of connect with it and see what he's really talking about. So one of the greatest examples, again, Luke 15, I think, is one of the best examples of Jesus teaching in parables. But we need to look at it. It's really more than just three individual stories. It's three individual stories that collectively make up a response that Jesus had to some Pharisees who were challenging him. And so I think rather than to just teach them individually like a lot of time happens, let's look at them as a whole. At least that's what we've been doing. That's what this series is about. So let's go back. We're going to look at them. Again, Jesus gets challenged by the Pharisees, and this is his response. So if you remember, chapter 15 started out with kind of this motley, ragtag group of sinners kind of following Jesus around the countryside. He had just left one of the Pharisees' homes after schooling them because they were giving him a hard time for hanging out with these people. And so Luke 15 starts out like this. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now all the tax collectors and sinners, one, one group of tax collectors and sinners, were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain. We got this to these two groups, the tax collectors... Uh, apologies to anybody that works for the IRS or knows anybody. It was a different time then. And then the sinners, who, which is a, a catch-all phrase for everybody else who we would call the least of these today, right? And then on the other side, this group of Pharisees who spent their whole life trying to, to apply the law and, and, and hold the law as best they could. And then the scribes, which were it was their job to write down. A lot of times today they would both write it down and they would preach it. So they were basically kind of traveling preachers. But there was, they were responsible for keeping the Word of God, keeping the Scripture, Old Testament Scripture as we know it today, keeping that right and keeping it accurate and learning it and knowing it. And so a lot of cases they knew it by heart. So all these guys knew it by heart and they're saying, look at Jesus hanging out with those guys. Those guys don't know anything. Those guys don't know 
They don't know what we know. And their response, verse 2, and both the Pharisees and the scribes began saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Remember, he had just walked out of a Pharisee's house not eating with them because they were giving him a hard time. So Jesus responds. So that's their entire challenge to him, right? doesn't sound incredibly challenging in today's times. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he responds to their derision, their accusation, their sneering and laughing by launching into them these three parables. That's why we kind of look at them as a whole. So last week, we heard about the parable of the lost sheep. Okay, remember that? If you missed it, go back and read it again. A lot of us are at least on the surface kind of familiar with that. If you missed the message, go back and check it out. But we heard the parable of the lost sheep. The parable of the lost sheep, basically this, this sheep, this, this um, ignorant sheep, lamb, was just wandering around. Today we'd say it was living its best life. It was going from one nice tuft of grass to that, oh, that, that clover looks really good. I'll go over there. And then, wait, that grass looks really juicy, too. I'll go over there. And, hey, there's some more grass. And it was just living its life. It wasn't purposely rebellion, rebelling against the shepherd. It wasn't purposely sneaking away to get lost. It wasn't, there was nothing nefarious about what it's doing. It wasn't thinking about the consequences of being separated from the flock and from the shepherd. It wasn't thinking really about anything except just, I just want to eat and that looks good. And it was just wandering its way and it strayed away. It was just absorbed with moving from one thing that was in front of it to the next. The sheep had no idea that it was even lost. I would imagine when the shepherd came up to it, now sometimes when they would get lost and realize that they're lost, they would start screaming. And, and as I taught last week, the whole flock could be 20 feet behind them, but they don't turn around. All they know is it's not in front of them anymore. But so we don't know whether this knew it or not, and this sheep knew it and was surprised when the shepherd came up and said, hey, you got away from us. But either way, it should serve to remind us that you can either remain lost or become lost unintentionally. It can just be unintentional ignorance. And I don't mean ignorance in a bad way. You just don't know what you don't know. You don't know that it matters. You don't know that it matters that you wandered off on your own. You just become preoccupied with life like the sheep was preoccupied with the next tuft of grass. That's all it knew. What happens in our lives is that we just become preoccupied with the next job, the next house, the next thing we're doing, the next party, the next whatever, and we just become, we just follow this path of whatever is most enticing and right in front of us. And then one day, like the sheep, you lift your eyes up and go, how did I get here? How did I get from where I thought I was to this place? I don't really know, but I kind of find myself lost now. How do I get back? Happens all the time. You just wake up from what I like to call like a spiritual coma and find that life has moved away. We didn't leave. We've been here all along, but life just kind of went somewhere else. And now I find myself, I don't know where I am. So like the proverbial sheep, we just find ourselves in this place. And Paul, the Apostle Paul said this, Romans 13, 11, He's warning the people, he says, do this knowing that the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. He's not saying, hey, wake up to those people who are literally sleeping. He's saying, those of you who are in a spiritual sleep, just wandering around, just finding your way, bumbling through life, the time is drawing close. It's time to be awake, and it's time to be engaged. So that's all the parable of the lost sheep that we talked about and how Jesus Christ himself is the pursuer in that parable. So this week, when we go into the second one, the parable of the lost coin, you might be tempted to think it's just a restatement of the first one, just saying it in a different way. He said the first one that way so that the shepherds would understand. He said about the lost coin so that the tax collectors would understand. And then he'll say it later a different way so that another group of people will understand. Maybe, and maybe that's part of it. But there's nothing wasted in Scripture. 
Nothing's just a repeat. So we need to peel back some of those layers and look a little bit deeper about what he's talking about here. So again, in the first parable, Jesus is speaking about himself as the shepherd. Okay, Figuratively, he's the shepherd, the good shepherd, looking for his lost sheep. In the second one, we talk about the lost coin, and it starts out by talking about a woman. So in the first one, it's the shepherd. And the second one, the lost coin that we're going to talk about, it's the woman. And then next week, when we talk about the prodigal son, it will be the father. So it's different people. So there's got to be something intentional there, right? Let's look at it a little bit. What we see here, and we're going to look at it through this lens today, we, the church, is represented in this woman. This woman searching for the valuable coin that she lost. And that's how we're going to look at it today. So I'm going to read it to you. Luke chapter 15, verses 8. 9, and 10. It's just three verses. It's so much depth here. So let's read it. So first of all, 15.8. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Verse 9. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the lost coin which I have lost. In verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So clear and concise, three verses. Certainly there's not a lot of depth there, right? Nobody said right. Nobody agreed. Correct answer. There is depth there. Let's take a look. Let's go back in and look at each one of these lines a little bit more closely. So Luke 15, 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? So the first illustration, again, was of a shepherd. This is a woman. This woman represents the church and the bride of Christ. But let's look even further. Let's look at just some of the historical kind of background that maybe would illuminate what's going on here a little bit better. These coins, first of all, when you talk about ten coins, most likely they were drachmas. That's, that was the type of money that they were using in that region at that time. So it was probably a drachma. A drachma wasn't a lot of money then. Still not a lot of money. But then it represented approximately a day's labor. So it was significant enough, obviously, to look for and to be happy when you found it. But it wasn't a lifetime of savings. It was day's labor. In today's money, it would be about 15 cents. So 10 drachmas at 15 cents. We're talking about a buck and a half, and she's panicked about that. So there's so much more about that. First of all, times were different. It was a day's wages. But let's look even more. Jewish scripture, or Jewish scripture, scripture is not specific on this, but when you do study, you look at multiple sources. So you look at um, the context in terms of cultural things that were going on, historical context, even use outside non-scriptural sources to kind of figure out what's going on and what some of this means. Look at, look at the significance of these 10 silver coins. So you have a woman who has 10 silver coins. Let's stop right there. It wasn't very common for a woman to have much money of her own if really any money. She wouldn't, certainly wouldn't carry it around with her. At that time, she probably didn't work much, at least not outside to where she would be earning money. She would work in the fields and that sort of thing. But the husband, if she had any money, it would immediately go to her husband or her father if she were younger. So she didn't really have a lot of money of her own. So what would happen in that culture is a woman would squirrel away a little money, save a little money throughout her life. And the idea was eventually to come up with her own contribution to her wedding dowry. So the father was responsible for, he would give sheep, goats, all these sorts of things because he had those. The woman's contribution to a marriage at that time was that she would provide traditionally 10 coins. And that was her contribution to the dowry. It came on a headdress. They would sew it literally into this headdress called a gargush. Here's a picture of it. It's not a great picture, but it gives you kind of an idea of what it might look like. The coins in the back there, those look gold, but they typically would have been silver coins. And sometimes the tradition was 10. If you had more money and were able to obtain more, you would put more on there. But you would wear this not only when you were a maiden going around looking for a husband, but once you got married, you would continue 
to wear this. Probably not every day, but you would continue to wear it as an example of, here's what I bring to this marriage. Here's my contribution to this marriage. Here's the problem, though. It was so valuable to her in many ways, culturally as well as just physically, uh, monetarily, that the law stated that you couldn't take it in case, like, say, the husband got into debt or she got into debt. The gargoyle was off limits. You couldn't take that from her. So a lot of times, some very clever and enterprising husbands would take a little extra savings and sew it onto that headdress so that if he fell into debt, they would have a little that was untouchable still. Didn't happen all the time, but sometimes it did happen. Here's the thing, though. It wasn't a lot of money, but it could be in the case where she lost one. So if we assume, and we don't know from Scripture again, but it doesn't change the core of what's going on here. If she lost one, it would immediately be apparent. Her husband would come home. Anybody would see and go, where'd the one coin go? Thus giving some panic to her, right? It's not a lot of money cash-wise, but it meant she couldn't be trusted anymore or was incapable maybe of dealing well with the affairs of the house. The Proverbs 31 woman that we hear about, that wouldn't have been her, so she's panicking. She notices this coin is gone. This is a problem. If my husband sees, if anybody else sees, all of a sudden I'm going to be I'm going to be looked down upon cuz I lost it. More so than just the money. There's a whole social aspect to it. Now notice that the coin it doesn't say it's stolen. Nobody comes in and forcefully takes it away. It doesn't lose itself. It doesn't grow legs and wander off. So what was it? How did it get lost to begin with? We don't know because Scripture doesn't tell us. But it almost had to be some level of carelessness or maybe neglect. Maybe the thread started to wear through and she didn't notice, didn't pay attention. Or maybe she did notice and said, oh, I'll get it someday. Who knows why it actually happened? But it probably fell off, hit the floor, rolled away, and went into a crack or under a piece of furniture or who knows where. And floors were most likely dirt in those days. So in the process of just walking around, dirt probably covered it up. And before you knew it, it could be in plain sight. And you couldn't see it anymore. So that's where she is. It's right. We know the coin is right there in the house. It didn't go anywhere. Nobody stole it. It's there. It was there one day where it's supposed to be. And the next day it wasn't. So her response then, what does she do? She's in a panic. She lights a lamp, first thing. Again, houses in those days, especially modest ones, probably didn't have, um, they had a door, obviously, but they probably didn't have much in the way of windows. It was probably pretty dark in there. So the first thing she does, it's got to be around here somewhere. I'm going to light a lamp. She lights a lamp. Now we see the significance of the lamp. We're looking at these things that happen through a deeper spiritual context, right? So let's look at a lamp. We see the idea of a lamp all over in Scripture. So here's this one, a parable of the lamp that Jesus himself is telling. Luke 8, 16, 17. Now no one lights a lamp and covers it with a container or puts it under a bed. He puts it on a lampstand so that those who come may see the light. For nothing is concealed that, not will, be, that will not become evident nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Okay. We know that that lamp in that parable represents the truth of Jesus. And that truth of Jesus is meant to be shared. It says you put it out in the open. You don't hide the truth. You don't just hold it close to the vest. It's meant to be shared. And that that shared truth, that shared light of Jesus has the power to save the lost. And then another one here, John 8, 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's the light of Jesus shining in those who follow him. If you follow Jesus, if he is your Lord and Savior, you have the light of Christ in you, and it's meant to shine, to be attractive to those who are around you. Another part of the saving power of the gospel. So the light of Christ reflected in us can help find the lost. And what she's doing there is lighting that lamp symbolically, and it's, and it's helping to find this, this lost uh, thing of value, a coin in this case. So after lighting the lamp to bring light to the search, what does she do? She sweeps. The spiritual representation behind this sweeping 
is huge. We saw all throughout our last study in Job that no matter where you are in your life, God wants to refine you. No matter how much layers of dirt and crud and grime are built up on you or what you've gone through, God wants to take that circumstance and use it to refine you, to refine you back into what you were originally meant to be. And that's what we see here. So 1 John 1, 7, again, another scripture from later. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So when the gospel of Jesus comes into contact with sin, it sweeps it away. It can't help to. The gospel of Jesus cleanses sin, sweeps it away, exposing the lost, that which was lost, to the light of life. But guess what else that really says? Fellowship. We have fellowship with one another. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It comes through us and through our sharing that gospel. Then once the lost are exposed to the gospel, through you, their sin is cleansed and then they can return to the rightful place. That's what's illustrated here in Luke 15, 9 then. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I found the coin which I had lost. Let's think about that. What does she do? What would we do? If you lost something you'd been entrusted with, it was super valuable, and you lost it, and she's panicking. Oh, my gosh, I hope my friends don't see. I hope my husband doesn't find out. I hope, I hope, I hope. If you found it then, you'd go, whew, let's put it back where it belongs and hope nobody notices. Wouldn't that be human nature? I'm not going to advertise the fact, sure, I'm happy because I found it, but that means I lost it to begin with. I'm not going to open myself up to that kind of questioning. This right here says that when she found it, her first response was to call her friends and neighbors together and rejoice over finding that lost thing. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote this, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 26. And if one part of the body suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If a part is honored, all the parts rejoice with it. That's what it should be in the body of Christ. That's us. We are the body of Christ, and we should all suffer together, and we should all rejoice together. That's the benefit of being in a body, that you're not alone. If you're going through something, if you've lost something valuable, if you're suffering, you have a body around you to help you, encourage, and then when that thing is recovered, then we rejoice together. That's the benefit of being part of the body, and you can't do that. I know if you're at home and you have to be at home, that's why we broadcast so that you can be there if you can't. But there is value in being engaged physically with the body of Christ that you can't get online. You can't get any other way. We share in the joys and we share in the sorrows, and we gain our strength from that. So we all should share in the joy for those who are found as well. Luke 15, 10. Here's the last scripture of these three. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. To us, we go, okay, that makes sense to me. Think about it their time, though. A whole whole mix of people from different backgrounds. But the Jewish teachers of that day, the Pharisees of that day, would more likely have a different take on that saying. Let me read it again. There's, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The more popular teaching of that day went like this. There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. No idea of repentance, no idea of grace or of mercy there. And I wonder how often we, as the body of Christ that should be just reflecting his love, give the impression that we think that way too. Another teaching for another day. In the first parable then, let's go back. The first parable, Jesus was was talking about stopping at nothing to pursue the lost and bring them back to the flock. So the second one, what's the second one about? Again, if you just boil it down to nothing, something valuable was lost, then it was found, then everybody's happy, the end. Could just be that. I think there's more to it. Okay, in the first one, the good shepherd, Jesus, was pursuing the lost. In the second one, the woman, representing the church, the bride, us, 
is responsible for caring for something that's been given to us and trusted. Whether we earned it or was given to us, we're entrusted with it. And we're supposed to watch over it. Next week we talk about it from another aspect. But this could be these valuable things. This coin in this instance is lost right before our eyes. It was right where it was meant to be, and now it's not. And there comes the panic. We, these things can happen in our own church, in our own homes, in our own families. That which was right where it was supposed to be, right in the arms of Jesus, right on the track where it should be, through inattention or circumstance, all of a sudden, it's not there anymore. And we've lost it. And it's our job then to go back and sweep. And we sweep with the gospel of Jesus. Sometimes a soul can be lost right in front of your eyes. While you watch, you can watch it happen. And we should seek just as diligently as this woman did to return it. Sometimes, there are many reasons why it can happen. How about this for one? Sometimes a soul is lost or a person is lost because other sheep in the flock bite. Anybody ever been bitten by another sheep in the flock and it turned you off of being a part of that flock? Why would I want to keep going here? Those people do nothing but judge me, bite me, and look down on me. Why would I want to be here? So we move away from that flock. Sometimes it's attempted theft. It's literally theft. The, the enemy, through temptation or deception, he wants to steal that relationship from you. And so there are many different spiritual ways. We've talked about that a lot. Sometimes, here's what I want to focus on. Hear this. Sometimes it's the failure of the church. Again, the church isn't me standing here. The church is all of us. And we fail to show value in being a part of the body. We fail to show, and not only to say the words, but to live the words. Being a part of this body, being engaged in this body is important to me. And make absolutely no mistake, people are watching us to see where we place our value. I read an article just yesterday, and this article was about a bunch of, a bunch of research that was done talking about, uh, in this case it was young adults, but it talked about why so many in that age group are leaving the church. And it went all the way back to when they were kids. When they're kids. Now, when you're, when you're a parent and you know Christ and you bring your kids to church with you, good for you. Good for you. They get to engage in Sunday school and they get to hear a lesson and they get to have fun and they get to see that it's valuable. Now, though, because we all know the kids watch us, what happens the next week when you go, uh, we got up late, I was up late last night, I don't feel like going to church, I'm just going to sleep in. Kids start seeing these things. No condemnation in any of this, please. But kids see these things and they go, okay, here's where I value going to church and my relationship in the body here then. If I didn't get enough sleep, or the stars didn't align, or I forgot to put gas in the car last night, or whatever it is, church can just go aside because church will be there next week. And then next week you go, well, we're two-thirds through a series and we've already missed the first half, so let's just, let's just wait until the next time. And kid goes, okay, so if it's not convenient or if you miss something, then, then that's where church falls in the level of importance. I'm not going to church today because the Broncos play at 11. I'll catch church online. Okay, so now the Broncos are more important than that. Kids watch us. And so the result of this research was kids watch, and when, when they're in Sunday school and you're bringing them, they engage. Whenever you're there, they engage, hopefully. Then they go through youth. And all the way up through youth, hopefully they have some awesome youth pastors like we have here, and they're engaged, and they see the value, and it's fun, and they have fellowship and community, and they do all these things. And then when that's over, and you're no longer driving them there, and they now have the choice, then... They're out on their own for the first time in life, and they've got responsibilities and thoughts and things that they never had to deal with before. All of a sudden, they have to deal with them on their own, and they're saying, where's my priority? Well, I kind of learned growing up that church either wasn't 
that important or whenever you didn't have anything else going on, it was good to do and it kind of felt good, but if it interfered with other things we wanted to do, that's okay. And so they go, gosh, my life is so crazy busy. I'll get back to church when I get back to church. And they walk away. And every time that goes on, it just reinforces that. And they're like, well, I've been away for years now. feel weird to go back now. And they just disappear. But you know what else the research said? It said, of those surveyed who found their way back to church after that kind of a situation, 70% of them found their way back because someone who was engaged in a church reached out to them and said, hey, haven't seen you in a while. Where you been? What you been up to? Why don't you come back to church? 70% re-engaged with their relationship in the body from that. There's so many other urgent things going on in our lives, crying for our attention. The tyranny of the urgent. Whatever's the squeaky wheel, whatever's the most panicked reason you got going on in your life right now, that's what gets the attention. Our relationship with Christ often takes a back burner because we take it for granted. This woman may well have been taking that coin for granted. It's always there. I sewed it on. I know I sewed it on tight. Suddenly, it isn't there anymore, and she's panicked. Have you ever heard somebody say a statement like this? It just I hear this or a version of it all the time. When I was a kid, my parents made me go to Sunday school all the time. I even went to church as a teenager, but as soon as I moved out on my own, I quit, and I've never gone back. Some version of that. Church, that can only happen if we, the church, fail to show value in being a part of a body. And I don't care if that body's here. Hear me, all of you, in-house and out there online. This is not about the pastor saying, we need to get more butts in the seats. Okay? This is not about that. You need to be engaged in the body of Christ because if you've given your heart to Jesus, that's who you are. You're a part, an integral part, an indispensable part of the body of Christ, and you need to engage. And if it can't be here, I'd rather it's here for all of you. But if it can't be, find a place where it can be because that body needs you. This body needs you. God works through his people. That's the illustration of this parable. God works through his people, through the family of believers in the body of Christ, through the bride of Christ, who is us, to find the lost and to bring them back where they belong. Ephesians 2, 4 to 6 says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know what that says? It says no matter how lost or how covered with dirt and grime and no matter how distant you have been, your rightful place is seated with him in the heavenly places. That's our rightful place. So regardless of what gunk life has piled on you and where have you found yourself, wandered away for whatever reason, that's your rightful place. And my passion is to get you back there. I had this illustration. I thought of this of a new coin. Obviously, the illustration of the coin is where it came from. But you think about it. Anybody ever been to the Denver Mint? Denver Mint's cool. Or one, any one of the other mints. It's really cool to go and watch. But when you look at new pennies... Look at all these new pennies. These new pennies, they're super shiny. They don't have any grease or grime or gunk on them. And even more than that, they are so full of possibilities. You look at it, anybody ever look at a brand new penny and think, how many possibilities are there? What's it going to be spent on? What's it going to be, where's it going to travel? Is it going to find itself in a suitcase and end up halfway across the world? Is it going to end up falling out of somebody's pocket, rolling under the bed and spend 10 years there? Is it, what are all the, it's just full of possibilities. They're clean and shiny and they're brand new. And then, and then life kicks in. And the grime and grease and gunk and age and time get to you and the pennies end up looking like that. Or some version of, anybody have a penny in their pocket that looks black or green or some variation of that color. That's what it looks like. 
at the end of its life. It's lived a hard life. It's spent who knows how much time lost someplace. Maybe it's just traveled the world. Who knows? But it's been beaten up. It's been misused. It's been abused. Anybody know that a penny makes a great screwdriver sometimes? And it spent no small amount of time covered in pocket lint and grime. But we have this promise. We have this promise in Christ. Again, 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. No matter what you have been through in your life, like the penny, we talk about the crucible of the refining fire of Christ. You could take all those pennies and melt them down, burn off the impurities and make a brand new something beautiful out of them. That's what Christ promises to do with us. Cleanse us from all sin. And he uses us, his church, to do it. Amen? Hey, I want to take a minute. I know we're a little bit over. I just want to take a minute and do some testimonies. We did that last week. I want to do it as often as we can because there's so much power in the, in the things and the stories, the things that you guys have gone through. But I want to focus these testimonies. I'm going to bring the mic over. And here's what I want. Did you, as an adult, as a child, at any point in your life, did you stray from church? Did you find yourself away from being engaged with the body of Christ? And then more importantly, what brought you back? Or who brought you back? Anybody have one? I've got a story I can tell, but I've been talking a lot. Anybody have a story that they'd like to share? about how maybe they or somebody they know strayed away and how they were brought back. Not all at once, take turns. Mark. You can raise that up if you want. Sure, I might just easier to do this. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I grew up in the church. My family raised me, and around my teenage years, um, as I, especially my later teenage years when I was going into college, um, completely straight away from the Lord. Um, it was just, and it was like you said, it's just a little bit at a time, you know? Um, it was, oh, I'm going to go hang out with my friends here, or I'm going to go to this party, or hey, we're going to go out this Friday night, you want to go to the bar? And before I knew it, 20 years of my life had passed. I was at the bar all the time. I was drinking all the time. And one day I was driving home from work, and um, I was listening to the radio, and I had heard uh, Pastor... Ed Taylor, I think is his name, at Calvary Aurora, and he just mentioned something to me, or, well, he mentioned it on the radio, but it hit me, and all of a sudden, I just heard Jesus say to me, you've had your time, come back and follow me, and it was just so clear, it was like I had literally had heard him just through what was being said on the radio, and so from that moment, I actually made a decision to walk into church, completely terrified, thinking, all right, Nobody's going to want to accept me. Like, I've, you know, been, uh, you know, kind of on this long path. But, uh, but, yeah, and Jesus just pulled on my heart. And ever since, he's just been doing it and bringing me more and more into fellowship with him and relationship with him. So, yeah. yeah. I'm Renee. Um, my story is that I grew up in church, um, in the Methodist church, and um, my dad didn't go, but my mom did. We went all the time and got through junior high, got through high school, um, and when I went to college, I was on my own, and I didn't even know how to plug into a church, and I had a girlfriend that she would go to church. She never invited me, so I never went. Years later... When I was in my 30s and working a corporate job, um, I have a girlfriend, Mary, and she invited me to, to church. And on that day that I went to church, I was blown away because I watched people walk in in jeans, leathers, because they had ridden their, their motorcycle there, um, what looked like pajamas, suits, and I thought, well, this is a really unique church. And it was Crossroads on Kipling and 50th. And 
That day, the, the pastor said, um, you know, you don't want to miss out on the big party. There's going to be a big party. You don't want to miss out. And I thought, you know what? I've been struggling. I don't want to miss out on any more of life. So that was the day that I, like, answered the altar call. I did not go up. But from that point on, my girlfriend coached me. She explained to me what the Holy Spirit was. She explained to me how to pray. She explained to me things that I did not learn in church. And from that point on, through my girlfriend Mary, I got plugged into this group called Bill and Charlie's Excellent Adventures. Christian singles group. Changed my life. I learned how to be a friend, have a friend, um, minister to people, go on amazing, amazing trips, camping trips, and, and, and it, it is through that that I learned how to, how to minister to people. But it is not through the church. It was through the fellowship that I found, or they found me, and slowly brought me into churches. And once through those groups, I plugged into churches, then I did mission trips, and I, I did amazing service work. But it was truly, truly, it was through the friends that, that brought me in. Um, hi, I'm Eliana, um, and this summer, she's not here this morning, but Anissa Stumbo and I have um, been leading like a small group for the middle school girls, and um, I don't know however many of like the last several months it's been, but I mean, I've been here at church, and I've been coming to like young adults group on Wednesday night and everything, but I haven't really felt like connected with my faith or really interested in it lately and I was kind of struggling with like trying to talk to these other younger girls about things that I wasn't even actually like doing myself and being like oh yes and you do this to pursue your faith and I wasn't doing it but I was like trying to help them with it um so last Thursday night we had our young adults group and I had, Anise and I were thinking up a topic to talk about that night, and I said, like, what if we talk about, like, the distractions in our life and, like, those things that are um, keeping us from our pursuit of God? Because, like, I felt last week, like, super distracted. I spent no time with God. I had no quiet time, no worship, nothing like that. And so we talked that night in our small group about, like, the distractions and how, like, to cut those out and um, and how to like intentionally and continually pursue God. So we talk about that Thursday night. Friday morning, I am having, like a, I'm sleeping, having a dream Friday morning before I wake up and I'm having a dream where it's just like a normal dream. Oh, I'm, I was like at school or something and it was like at the end of a class and I was asking the teacher, like, what's the homework for next week, as, like, you would do. I don't know, it was just kind of like a regular dream. And then suddenly the dream changed, and the teacher was God. And he said, like, to me, the only homework you have to do this week is to seek me, and I'll be waiting to see if you do it. And then I woke up. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, that's, like, not just a random dream. Like, that's a very, very specific and clear thing. And so I think I was really like encouraged by the fellowship and having talked about that thing like the night before with this small group that that really encouraged me and like gave God the opportunity to speak that to me on Friday morning and I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't been like trying to have that fellowship with those girls even though I wasn't really feeling it so yeah That's awesome. The common thread of all of those testimonies, and I'm sure many more that we could hear, is that someone, whether it be just a random person on a radio station or a good friend or, or even somebody you're trying to teach, helps you, helps you refocus and helps you just realize that there's never any time where it's too late and there's too much sin in our lives and you're too far gone 
to come back to Jesus. So I think we can praise him for that. And um, I want to take some time now. I just want to pray for a minute. But here's what I'd like you to do. We're going to go into communion. Worship team, you guys can start getting ready. Communion, by the way, we have, we do it a couple ways. At the crosses, we have bread and juice and gluten-free crackers, and you can serve yourself or serve your friends there. Gabe and I will be up front, and we have wine and bread, and we could serve you if you just make a little line right here. But let's take that and just celebrate what Christ has done for us, his relentless pursuit of us. We are never too far gone, and we are never too far lost. He will always send someone. But I want to pray about this. What is our place in that? Who do you know? Is there a neighbor, a friend, a relative, somebody in your own house, somebody right in front of your nose that needs to hear it from you, that needs that re-invitation? Come on back in. Let's, let's re-engage. And let's just take a minute to just ask the Lord that. So pray with me. Father, thank you for your relentless pursuit. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, for us, so that through him, then, we can have fellowship with you. We can be empowered with the Holy Spirit, by which then we can know the things to say and the time to say them. We can have all the power of Jesus to be the reflection of Jesus in the world. So, Father, show us if there's somebody, if there's somebody we need to reach out to, if there's somebody that we need to take the broom of the gospel sweep away the sin and return that person to where they need to be. Help show us that. Show us that, Father. Let us be your instrument of returning them to the flock. Father, help us to be a stronger part of this body or show us a body where we can be. Father, we want all that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.